Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 93 for June the 21st, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest again this week is Michael Argas. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks for having me back again, Chet. We miss you for a year, and then we bring you back for repeat appearance. But um, Twice in a row. Yeah, well, we've, we've got some interesting topics. We're going to be doing a, uh, a sub-podcast. For those of you who listen to the podcast, you may be interested in, especially if you're Canadian, which is one of the reasons Michael's here today, is uh, we're going to do a separate dealio on the new upcoming legislation, especially around C-12, which is a privacy-focused amendment to uh, Canada's laws. So those of you that are interested in that, please download the uh, the second podcast that won't be listed as a chat chat this week. But since Michael's here, we're going to dig right back into the security news since the last time we talked two weeks ago, which kind of started the day after we talked, or maybe even that afternoon. LinkedIn had a massive password breach, followed by eHarmony. Followed, followed by everybody else, it seemed. Yeah, last.fm. Uh, it, it, it seemed to be a popular time to disclose, oops, it looks like somebody stole our hashes. And that's kind of what it really looked like. I mean, LinkedIn's appeared to have been in the past. Uh, you know, There was quite a few people, in fact, uh, LastPass mentioned on their blog that some of their employees that changed their passwords regularly said that that was like a password from three or four months previous oh, that was in the hash list. Okay, so it was a while before they published them out. It was a while before they were made public, and obviously that entire time LinkedIn was unaware of it or wasn't willing to disclose it at least. Right. Which is kind of another interesting question. You know, the advanced persistent threat excuse that's often used in these things not this time thankfully but the advanced being they were smarter than us persistent being they were there and we didn't notice uh, i think those might both apply in this case <laughs> and a bit of a threat you know somebody's stealing your passwords that's something to keep in mind as well but, but you know this hashing thing i didn't want to get into the details of um how much how much denial linkedin is in about the impact of this or the irresponsibility of eHarmony using md5 or last.fm's passwords being stolen for more than a year and not noticing which kind of puts linkedin making them look pretty good. Yeah. Well, I think with uh, LinkedIn and eHarmony in specific, you got a great social engineering combination if you find accounts that were common to both of them, right? You know, I yeah. know I know all your business contacts and I know all your personal contacts kind of thing. Well, and it's yet to be seen. Of course, nobody's disclosed what total information was stolen. And, and it's, you know, I imagine for legal reasons, it's unlikely unless they're compelled by a judge to, uh, to tell everyone what happened. But the bigger picture is this whole hashing thing. I just wanted to talk about it really briefly. I mean, there's been all these blogs and, and kerfuffle on Twitter and stuff about MD5 and SHA-1 and SHA-2 and salting and on and on and on. And we don't have time to necessarily explain salting and hashing and all that. I mean, in and of itself could easily be a half an hour conversation. But even salting, if you're storing passwords today, that's kind of like, that's not, that's like bare minimum to entry kind of stuff. I mean, salting has been kind of a best practice i would say for at least 20 years yep and that's what the class action lawsuit's all about right they aren't kind of hitting minimum standards we may not necessarily all agree on what is acceptable these days but there's some minimums and they weren't there yet well and, and folks talk about the cpu power involved uh in the capabilities so many people have now with gpus and playstations and you know all this other stuff and you know if you really want to step back and look at it for a second as an example you know apple's ipad the most recent versions do not only, you know, salt your password before they store it, but they also do 10,000 rounds of that salting and hashing process. So they take the resulting hash after it's salted, add the salt to it again, and then hash that. And they do that like 10,000 times on a device 
that has a nine hour battery life that fits in my pocket and has flying birds and websites and all kinds of stuff on it. You have big pockets, but anyway. Well, yeah, I do uh, carry an exceptionally large jacket just to carry my iPad in the pocket. But the the point being, if I can do this on a mobile device, I don't think it's too much to ask my mobile, my website operators to take some due diligence beyond a single salted hash uh, in storing my passphrase. Yeah, somebody had put up a comment around, you know, everybody, every password should be forced to disclose how they store your passwords. Every website should be forced to disclose how you store your passwords, and you should decide whether or not it's uh, credible or not. You know, it's uh, oh, the, yeah, the bad practices out there, I think, would be shocking if it were if they were able to be documented. We just all we can document today is the ones that are truly atrocious, like the guys that email you your password um, when you ask to reset it, which means they're clearly not storing it securely. Yeah, uh, and there's a shocking number of those sites as well, which um, I've actually been tempted to go through like the Alexa top ten thousand and just see. How many are willing to email me my password? But, folks, if you're responsible for handling passwords, please take note after all this stuff. It re- you know, it's, if you're not doing salts at a minimum, it's not that hard. You, know, you can set a bit in your web app to say next time the person logs in, compare the hash without the salt. If it matches, add the salt and rehash it and store that instead and at least um, you know, start the process of moving down the road and don't let people log in without resetting it or force people to reset their passwords if you're doing it insecurely. Just And know that there's groups out there that are grabbing passwords and sharing them on the internet, so you're likely to get embarrassed sometime in the next couple of years if you aren't doing something to, to ensure their security as well. Well, and, and the password sharing is the other problem. Like, I, If you don't share your password, you don't need to care. Actually, my response to the LinkedIn thing that morning was like, so what? I'm like, so they stole a bunch of hashes. I mean, one, my password is long enough that it's going to take some computing power to break my hash, which turns out mine wasn't in the list. Uh, but on top of that, I just didn't react because I don't use that password anywhere but LinkedIn. And it was 24 characters and it was numbers and letters and symbols that I store in a password management application. And I just went, yeah, I'll get around to it. Like, I don't, I wasn't, I didn't need to worry. I didn't yep. have to react and, and. Uh, folks that were nervous about these situations uh, can maybe learn something from that. And and uh, you're, you're going to have to use a program. I mean, obviously, none of us are robotic enough to memorize all these passwords for all these websites that make us sign in. But, you know, follow the follow the advice, folks, please. You brought up an interesting thing about snooping and eavesdropping. I mean, all we hear about is the NSA and this, that, and the other. I mean, that seems like everybody's out to read our private thoughts. But our friends in Canada um, look like they're doing it as well. And so recently there was a big kerfuffle about... Uh, the you know some agency within Canada basically eavesdropping in Canadian airports. And yeah, it was the it wasn't the Border Services Agency or yeah, I can't remember exactly, but probably yeah. And uh, anyway, so that got all flamed up in the news, and Vic Toes, the uh, industry minister, whoever he is, um, basically, you know, if, if hash caves makes me cry. If if Vic Toes is involved in legislation, usually it's something you need to be aware of. Um, anyway, so he said, hey, we should probably stop doing this until we have a privacy impact assessment which made me raise the comment of don't you think you should do a privacy impact assessment before you start eavesdropping on canadian citizenships citizens and travelers so i I wasn't surprised to find out that they were you know miking the um, areas where you're waiting for immigration services Uh, i mean i didn't know it was happening but i kind of suspected that at that in that kind of a circumstance when you're sitting there um you know, it would be very interesting intelligence for people trying to screen people to be able to listen in, perhaps. Yeah, well, and I think it, the excuse for a lot of people who might choose to do that kind of observation is 
traditionally these airport areas and stuff like that have been considered almost constitution free zones um, in the states and stuff like that, right? Like if you're in one of those places, you're basically your rights are almost on hold. Yeah, you're in a no man's land. No man's land. So, uh, you know, kind of hold your breath until you get through and uh, hopefully everything's good. So maybe we'll do the the next uh, joint chat chat at one of those airports, and we'll just ask for the recording from the uh, Canadian Board of Services <laughs> Agency. Yeah, well, I, I I was thinking about setting a Google alert for Vic Taves just so I can track his movements and determine what he's up to, because uh, it appears he's the Minister of Demagoguery. Um, but anyhow, don't don't be surprised, folks, if the if the Canadians were listening to us in the in the border transit areas within Canada, I I would be shocked and surprised if the TSA and others weren't doing similar things. So, mind your P's and Q's while you're waiting for your passport to get checked. Microsoft, you know, did something rather innovative last year, and they announced some news today on the Blue Hat Prize, which um, I guess since we have black hats and white hats and gray hats, now we have blue hats. I don't. It's starting. It's reminding me of the old uh, freaking days where you had red boxes and blue boxes and beige boxes. But the blue hat prize is kind of an interesting idea where Microsoft soliciting um, individuals out there to give them ideas of um, mitigation that they can in, you know build into Windows to help mitigate attacks, sort of like. ASLR or address space layout randomization or DEP, data execution prevention. What is the next technology that can enhance security in Windows to proactively defend against uh, common attack vectors? And they announced today three finalists that will all be flown out to Vegas to Black Hat for the big announcement. And what was interesting is all three techniques that they chose were for what's known as ROP or return-oriented programming attacks where you manipulate return uh, registers uh, to, to point at malicious code rather than legitimate code to bypass a lot of these other things that the way you get around aslr and dep is through rop and so that's kind of obviously where their focus is so we're playing whack-a-mole now so we've got aslr and dep people figure a way around that we fix rop hopefully they don't figure a way around that well i think that's i think that's a big deal like if i don't know anything about the proposals of course because they're not they haven't announced the winner and obviously you know, there's a big prize money on the line and there's but we're going to make it a lot more complex for an attacker to build a tool chain it's brilliant i mean you know look at what apple's done without it without something like this on the iphone like you know every time there's a jailbreak it ends up being like seven or eight or nine volumes chained together to get around all these di- and that's just a well-implemented aslr and data execution prevention environment you know you 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 add that to the secure boot that they're introducing in Windows 8 to, you know, to help uh, um, eliminate rootkits and, and tampering with the kernel and the boot order. You, you know, you combine that with DEP and ASLR being done correctly, which again, in Windows 8, they've enhanced it beyond Windows 7 to make it more, uh, more correct, I'll say, because Windows 7 is, is partly implemented. Windows Vista is really barely implemented. So, you know, they're, they're, getting, they're coming along the line, but the iPhone is damn hard to break, and it's so hard that regular attackers aren't bothering. Only people that are so desperate to jailbreak it just for the for the hobby and the interest and the challenge of it are the guys doing it. The the criminals aren't doing it. It's just too hard. And why bother? Just go hack an Android. It's easy. So you're kind of holding out this promise of maybe there is a nirvana at the end of the road where we could have truly secure operating systems. I mean, you know, if you can build all these layers of defenses together, we can get to a point. I where want it's... to turn these guys back into muggers. I want it to be easy. You know, I, I want it to be so hard to hack a computer that they have to go back to other kind of crime <laughs> you know i'd love to put these guys out of business from being able to mug me from four thousand miles away with a few packets yeah. you know and 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 that and that's one of the biggest challenges of them people oh, why don't you know why don't we do more well what do you do about this i mean you know the united states is writing trojans left and right and no wonder they can't come to some kind of agreement with the russians about law enforcement around cybercrime. i mean 
you know, we have major political issues to deal with when you're trying to deal with this problem and, and the less of it that can happen online or the less of it that can be automated in mass like we've seen for the last 10 years, the safer we all are. I think it's great. Yeah. Speaking of which, if you're a foreign entity that's writing malware, you probably want to write your individual pieces of malware in a clean room for plausible deniability purposes. Just Yeah, know. Kaspersky Labs announced this week that they've you know, kind of been able to do a little bit of um, family tree work on the Flame malware and Stuxnet malware and found that early versions of Flame included a module that was identical to Stuxnet code, which you could argue could have been stolen by another um, government. That's that not very plausible. To, it's, it's not very plausible, but then they found that later versions of Flame integrated that code into another module, which means whoever compiled Flame had access to the source code from Stuxnet, which is you know the plausibility is is dropping at such a rate it's like one of those theme park rides i mean it's um it it, 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 it correlation is not causation no but but pretty damn sure huh pretty high r factor here so I, i'm wondering i would just love to be on the you know a, a fly on the wall at us cyber command and hearing what the reaction to this leak and all this information and the, the sloppiness with the code being reused. I'm wondering and, if they're issuing kill commands and other stuff that uses the same source code at this point, but hasn't been found out by us. That would be interesting as well, wouldn't it? Um, uh, it well, uh, you know, we do know certain behavioral things. I know there's a lot of IDS and IPS systems looking for certain things happening that in and of itself might give away an operation. It, it's a rather challenging situation if you're in that position, but yeah, uh, I think it's safe to say if you're in the United States or probably Canada or England, you don't need to worry about flame because I think it's all in the family. Um, what else do we have? Uh, some good news for once out of the United States around privacy. Uh, I've been waiting for, um, you know, it is an election year. And so it is time for President Obama to keep the promises he made before he was elected. Uh, so everything's getting jammed into the next few months here. And as well as some U.S. senators and House members as well who um, need to get a leg up on the competition coming into the, the election in November. And Senator or, uh, uh, Representative Wyden, uh, a Democrat, apparently put the, the, put, the, put the kibosh on the FISA Amendment Act. And the, the FISA Amendment Act was the bill that allowed the warrantless wiretapping with retroactive immunity for the carriers in the United States. And it was up for renewal. Thank God it had a sunset period. And most of these sunset things never happen. Like the we'll only raise taxes for five years and this will sunset, <laughs> right? Uh, but the sunset period came up for FISA or FISA. And Senator Wyden or I'm sorry, Representative Wyden said, uh-uh. Like you're not telling us how often you're using this. How many Americans are being spied on? I guess you could say legally since they did pass this bill. But I think it's unconstitutional. So I'm going to stick with illegally. That's good, right? Like – somebody's watching the watchers yeah except for the watchers or the watchers themselves i don't know it's uh i i mean it's absolutely good that there's a, a stance being taken uh for privacy especially considering the history of the last eight or nine years and the question is going to be are we we at the start of a turn of the tide where we go all right we overreacted and we need to start clawing some of these bad things back and recognizing some of the basic rights that we used to have or is this just kind of a an outlier is this posturing for the election? Is it just posturing for the election? Because I think those of us who are concerned with privacy would say that the slippery slope that we've been going down for the last seven or eight years, um, are, are we've been accelerating, and uh, we need to turn we need to turn that tide. Well, and that's the the reason we have adversarial government. You know, is that the executive branch who wants all these powers should be watched by the legislative branch of the U.S. government. 
And when they overstep, the courts are supposed to be able to intervene and prevent that and do something about it. Although that's a whole separate mess that's uh, not necessarily happening. But I, I, you know, I just, even if it's posturing, if it gets some attention, it raises awareness. Like, can we, you know, can we as a, as a community, can we have this conversation? And when a, when a, a member of Congress does something like this, it makes it on CNN. Let's acknowledge it. It gets on Fox News, et cetera, which means suddenly a whole bunch of people who maybe didn't even realize it was happening are, are made aware of what's out there. So I think that's good. Congratulations, uh, Mr. Wyden. We appreciate you stepping in and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. uh last but not least uh, i was a bit flabbergasted on tuesday patch tuesday of course um i do want to talk about patch tuesday for just a minute in that this is an absolutely critical one from last week if you haven't gotten those patches out there and i know almost everyone listening hasn't other than maybe on their personal computers i i gave a talk this tuesday and i asked uh 80 people how many of you have been able to roll out your patches in your environment at work and one man raised his hand um so I'm guessing most folks still haven't gotten them out there, but this is absolutely essential. I mean, 13 vulnerabilities in IE, many of them drive-bys that are being used zero day in the wild uh, before this patch was out. And so people are being hit left and right. We're seeing tons of abuse on it in Sophos Labs. And then in addition to that, a new zero day in MSXML that is unpatched that Microsoft does have a fix it available for that targets Internet Explorer and Microsoft Office and, ha- and has been used in targeted attacks. And again, Surface Labs, we've detected a aeronautical parts supplier who was accidentally spreading it through their website. So it looks like it's uh, espionage related. It's been used in zero days. But now that the, the code is out there, criminals are starting to use it to, to distribute garden variety malware. You don't have to be an enemy of the Chinese state or the United States government in order to get hit with this stuff. This yes. is being used by everyone. You have to get those patches out there as soon as you possibly can. Not to mention the RDP vulnerability that's very similar to MS-12020, which came out in February, that we all panicked was going to turn into an RDP worm. Turned out it was too hard to use and it was just denial of service. This one is really easy to make a worm. Like within minutes of looking at the code from map, we were able to go, oh, oh, this is like all it takes is somebody to care enough and it'll be out there. And I believe it's already even in Metasploit. So you, you got to get out there. One, you got to stop using RDP on the open internet. Two, you got to get those IE patches out there and that fix it. I mean, and, and this is not um, overreactive posturing. I mean, these things are in the tens of thousands already in the lab. We're seeing them. Um, they're, they're actively being exploited. You got to get them out there. And the good news, I guess, is that um, Apple's wake up call back in April. Java released an update. Oracle, as always, on uh, Patch Tuesday as well, along with uh, Adobe with Flash. And I think there was an Adobe Reader this month in addition to Microsoft's patches. Uh, but Apple actually patched the same day as Oracle. They they didn't manage to get all the bugs fixed. 10 out of 13? I think it was 10 out of 13. So, you know, at the, as a PR move, uh, they've sort of reacted going, we're not going to dally around. And maybe that was the decision. We couldn't get all 13, but you know what? It's not worth dallying. Let's get the 10 that we can get out there reliably out there today. Yep. And we'll go back for the rest later. But, you know, hope and we don't know which 10. Uh, I haven't. I mean, we do know. I just haven't looked. Um, to know whether those were being actively exploited in the wild or not. But Java is responsible for somewhere between 50 and 75% of infections and drive-bys right now. It is the most targeted plugin. So if, and you, if don't you don't need, need it, it remove it. it. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of us do need it. But if you're in a corporate environment, I recommend you do what I do, which is limit Java W.exe on Windows machines. Tell it it can't talk to the internet. Just let it talk to 10.8. 
if that's what you use on your internal LAN, if you've got some internal VPN applications. Or, I mean, we have a GVPN thing that uses Java here at Sophos. So I've specifically told my firewall, Java can talk to these known Sophos VPN IP addresses. Everything else is blocked. Just don't allow it to talk. And that allows me to have it be there without being at risk from random websites. And actually, it's one last note that we didn't have on the agenda, but I'll be really interested in your opinion. And Firefox just introduced um, the ability to automatically block plugins on each website and keep an individual record per website of whether to allow Flash or whether to allow Java or whether to allow um, um, Acrobat or whatever. And, you know, to me, that's something that's been in things like NoScript that a lot of us security nerds have used for years. Yeah. But integrating these things into the browser is fantastic, right? Yeah, I, I, mean, I completely agree. I mean, I use things like Click to Flash or equivalents and stuff like that fairly often. Yeah, um, you're a Chrome user, right? I'm a Chrome user. And uh, I think kind of making it so that people have to select to, to run these plugins as a, as a default is is definitely a step forward in security, especially since so many of the uh, the exploits that we see are kind of these malvertising campaigns where somebody isn't even necessarily looking for that content. It just gets dropped into a page alongside and uh, and they get exploited. So it's I think it's definitely a positive step forward. Yeah, I, I think so as well. And I just like that we're getting to a place where we're getting security by default. Yes. As opposed to begging and screaming and crying and having to write extensions and doing all these things to try to you know jam it down the throats of the vendors it seems like microsoft google and firefox are in a three-way race to outdo each other to create a secure browser i mean isn't that awesome yeah absolutely <laughs> so that concludes soft security chat chat 93 as always our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com on itunes or via rss and until next time stay secure <laughs>